This episode is sponsored by Major, Lindsay, and Africa, the global navigators of legal careers. For more than 30 years, Major, Lindsay, and Africa has helped match law firms and corporations with exceptional legal talent. To find out more, go to mlaglobal.com. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. I'm joined by Casey Sullivan. What's up, Casey? How's it going, Josh? Big Law Business is a podcast and website about the business of law that focuses on the largest U.S. law firms. We're recording this episode on the last day of September, and it has been a busy month for former solicitors general. Yeah, we've seen not one, but two, Paul Clement and Donald Verrilli, move into Big Law just before the start of the new Supreme Court term. Joining us from Washington, D.C. to talk about these moves and what they mean to the Supreme Court bar is Greg Storr. Greg covers the court for Bloomberg News. Welcome, Greg. Thanks. Good to be here. Let's start by talking about Paul Clement. Uh, Clement was the Solicitor General under George W. Bush. He's well known for arguing on behalf of conservative causes at the court. You've seen him argue many times at the court. Can you tell us about him? Well, he is, uh, and actually both he and Don Varelli are sort of the top tier of the top tier. Um, if you are looking for a conservative lawyer to make your case, who has credibility with the court, um, he is certainly near the top of your list. He, uh, the justices know him very well. They, they trust him. Uh, he is incredibly good on his feet. And he, he's just kind of a likable guy. And that, that plays well in the courtroom as well. And what are some of the cases that he has argued, I guess, both as Solicitor General and more recently? Where do we start? Um, he's argued more than 80 cases, um, including, uh, I think, 30 in the last five terms. So he has been uh, one of the most active lawyers out there. And these cases range from little ones that you don't want me to tell you about, or at least I don't want to have to try to describe, to some of the real blockbusters. So he's argued uh, <laughs> argued against the health care law. He argued in defense of the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, he, when he was in the... Bush administration uh, argued in defense of campaign finance laws, the uh, the, the big uh, uh, McCain-Feingold law, in, in kind of a position that that uh, people uh, sort of used to sort of say, look, he is a lawyer who will defend a position and do a, a very good job, even if it's not uh, the kind of law he might have voted for if he were a legislator. He also represented the NFL in Deflategate. I know that wasn't at the court, but that did have a direct effect on me. I'm a Tom Brady owner in my fantasy football league. Yes, I think all the Supreme Court reporters were disappointed that we didn't get didn't get a crack at that case because it would have been a lot of fun. Many found it interesting that he was not on Trump's short list of prospective Supreme Court justice nominees. Yeah, I'm not sure I would call it a short list. It's kind of a long list. Yeah, that's your right. Twenty-one names, which makes it even more remarkable. Um, yeah, he he is one person for uh, you know probably the last. 10 years, uh, people have said, or certainly 
throughout the Obama presidency, people said, well, if a <laughs> if there's a Republican president, Paul Clement's going to be at the top of the list of prospective justices just because he's he is, uh, uh, as I said, so able. He's got, uh, you know, really uh, impeccable conservative credentials. He clerked for Justice Scalia, among other things, as I said, was the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration solicitor general. Uh, and he wasn't on that list. And it was it was a very striking omission. I mean, one of the you know 21 names on that list, it did tend to be, you know, the entirety of that list does tend to be sort of an anti-establishment list. There are many more names from people uh, in you know Kentucky and Colorado than uh, among the Washington legal elite. And maybe that's the reason he's, he's left off. Um, uh, it, it was a little bit of a head scratcher. Tell us about his previous stint with a big law firm. He was at King and Spaulding. And, and what happened there? Yeah, what happened? I, I mentioned earlier the Defensive Marriage Act. <laughs> so if, if you recall, that was a law that uh, basically said, you know, as, as a matter of federal law, marriage is defined as, uh, as between a man and a woman. And the Obama administration uh, decided to stop defending that law. So the House of Representatives or, or the Republican leadership uh, moved in to try to defend it. And they, they uh, retained Paul Clement, which uh, makes a lot of sense. And uh, King and Spaulding signed off on that representation. But, but as the case progressed, King and Spaulding changed its, its tack, uh, perhaps in part because there was uh, some criticism among its, its other clients, uh, folks like Coca-Cola and, and other kind of big, big money clients. Um, and, the, uh, and King and Spaulding said, we need to, we need to, no longer represent the House of Representatives, and and Paul Clement said, "Well, I, I, this is my client. I owe them a duty of representation." And so he left the firm, and that's when he for, he joined this smaller firm called Bancroft, which is uh, uh, the the firm that was uh, acquired by Kirkland and Ellis, uh, or is in the process of being acquired. Tell us about Bancroft. What's what's their firm like? It's a boutique, an appellate boutique. What else do we know about this firm? Yeah, it's an appellate boutique. It is mostly but not entirely folks with conservative credentials. It is, if you look at the, the resumes of the, excuse me, of the lawyers there, uh, really, really impressive. Um, just a disproportionate number of the lawyers there, you know, clerked on the Supreme Court or for a top federal appellate judge, uh, you know, or on the Harvard Law Review or what have you. Uh, he, he was one of the big names there, along with uh, Viet Din, who's also a veteran of Republican administrations. Um, and and they tended to take take on some of the conservative cases that were before the court, but not exclusively. They also had some some corporate clients and some more traditional law firm work as well. And what has Kirkland's appellate practice group been like? How active were they at the Supreme Court? Are they are they known for taking conservative cases along the lines of what Bancroft was doing? A little bit, but not um, not as much as say Jones Day. Jones Day is a firm that uh, um, or, or, or Gibson Dunn are probably known a little bit more. Uh, but in general, yes, Kirkland and Ellis, uh, the head of the appellate practice, is a guy named Chris Landau who uh, is also a Supreme Court clerk and uh, uh, clerk for justices Thomas. And and Scalia both uh, argued a couple cases last term, so they are they are a very active, a very you know certainly well well thought of firm at the Supreme Court. 
Why would Kirkland want to add this firm? Is it a prestige play? Do they bring in significant revenue? What is the what are this the play that Kirkland is looking for? How, just from their point of view, there are some really good lawyers at Bancroft, and there are some high profile lawyers, and it, and it's almost why wouldn't they they want him? You know, as long as they can handle the what what King and Spalding couldn't handle, which is that uh, you know. Paul may uh, occasionally take on a client with a very controversial position. Um, you know, he's just one of the highest profile and, and uh, most well thought of lawyers uh, in the business. So adding him is is uh, would be a real coup for pretty much any firm. You know, I've spoken with a number of legal consultants about the move, and and what they've told me is that you know it doesn't necessarily bring. Uh, Kirkland, which already, you know, I think their profits per partner is above $3 million, uh, is what their partners earn on average. Like top five profits per partner, I believe, right? Yes. Um, it's certainly up there, you know, in, in that range. And, you know, it wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, be a profitability driver in that sense to bring on a Supreme Court practice like this. You know, what, what I've been told is that Kirkland is this firm. It's a Chicago-based firm. It regularly competes with the top firms in the country, um, is alongside Gibson Dunn, uh, Latham, Skadden. Yet it sort of has this, um, you know, out-of-town uh, feel about it, and they're sort of self-conscious about that is what, is what I've been told. And, you know, the, the thinking is that, you know, bringing Paul Clement on in a, in a team of that stature uh, enhances the prestige and sort of puts them on the map in a way that, um, you know, they weren't before. Then let's take it from the other side. What's in it for Bancroft? They have a lot of flexibility as a boutique, but now they're joining a much bigger firm. I assume a lot will change. And why do they want to make this move? I mean, I think it would only make sense for the money. One consultant estimated that, you know, you know, somebody coming in at, at Paul's stature would be earning somewhere around $10 million. I can't really see it working out if Kirkland hadn't thrown a ton of money on this deal. It had been reported that he was making about $5 million per year at King & Spalding when he left in 2011. And what about this notion of the types of cases that he was taking before and how that might, you know, could this create conflicts? Could this upset Kirkland clients? Well, the firm has had a traditional um, conservative history. They had staffed uh, Kenneth Starr, which um, I think we all know, um, you know, uh, was uh, famous for the investigation that led to the uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, He had left Kirkland, went to become the president of Baylor. Um, there's since been a scandal there uh, that has led to his uh, departure um, based on uh, you know the mishandling of uh, sexual assault claims on campus. Um, but you know that said, Kirkland uh, obviously doesn't necessarily see the reputational reputational damage um, from this at all. And, you know, it's sort of in keeping with what the firm has traditionally done in the past. One uh, interesting thought, and I don't know if I buy this, but I'll throw it out there, is that, you know, we're, we're of course, at a point where we may see a transition on the Supreme Court. And if you look at the kinds of cases that Paul has been involved in, you know, the challenge to Obamacare, uh, he, you know, has uh, defended voter, uh, voter ID laws, he has challenged campaign finance restrictions, he uh, been on the side of gun rights. Those are all cases that 
uh, seem like they had a much better chance with Justice Scalia on the court than they may in the future. So, uh, you know, one question worth asking is, you know, is he going to have less, fewer of these types of cases to, and are the other lawyers at, at Bancroft going to have, have fewer of these types of cases uh, that they'll want to bring in the coming years? Do you have a sense of the cases that they are representing, that they're moving over to Kirkland? Is there anything, any blockbusters coming, anything that's eagerly anticipated? Paul Clement, he mentioned that he is handling two of those redistrict uh, redistrict case on um, in Virginia, and I forget the other state, but um, that was the only; those were the only matters that he mentioned that he's handling. I'll give you one more that just is an kind of ongoing representation. He uh, represented Little Sisters of the Poor in the case over contraceptive coverage at the court last year, and that uh, because the court basically punted on that case, uh, that that case is still alive. Casey, I know you covered how this went down. Can you talk about how the it happened pretty quickly over a short period of time? What what happened? It happened over a really short period of time. Usually high profile lateral partner moves between law firms can take place over a number of years. Um, and so that's sort of something that struck me. It happened over a two week period. Mark Phillip, who is a top partner at Kirkland, had reached out to him over a phone call. Paul didn't know really what he was calling about at first. Eventually they reached a point where you know, they agreed to move forward and Paul shared it with the rest of his firm and they, nobody knows <laughs> what uh, w- was said in the room where it happened, but they found out this is a deal worth doing and went forward with it. This is a mass lateral hire and not an acquisition. What's happening to Bancroft and what's, how, why, do you have a sense of why that happens? And, and I know you've reported on stories like that in the past. Structured as uh, technically they're going to wind down uh, Bancroft and acquire its assets, which are the people and uh, that's happened in the past in a larger scale setting with, um, you saw it with Bingham McCutcheon and Morgan Lewis and a number of other firms. I wouldn't say that's very unexpected or surprising in this sort of situation, but the Bancroft name will be no more. They're holding up their website for the time being so that people know where to find them. There is one fun little fact that the firm's name Bancroft uh, reflects its original location, a townhouse on Bancroft Place Northwest in uh, Washington, D.C. Didn't know that. Right not named after the actress who played Mrs. Robinson, not named after a partner. It was sort of an interesting, you know, Viet Din is the person who founded this firm, right? So this That's is right. his choice. The American lawyer reported that Clement bills at $1,350 per hour. They noted that that is $450 less than what Ted Olson bills at, at Gibson Dunn reportedly. Again, I'm wondering about this tension between the boutique versus big law, and how do you see that playing out, Casey? I think that you know they're acquiring this practice because obviously the prestigious reputation that they've had over time and the cases that they've brought in. I think that, I mean, I would imagine that they would let him do <laughs> all of the great things that he's already been doing. So I, I don't know if you know bringing him on, he's going to be all of a sudden, um, you know, have all these restrictions imposed upon him. Um, you know, asked to bill a higher rate. Um, you know, this is an investment and. You know, Kirkland is known, well known for for paying a, t- a lot of money uh, for high profile lateral partners. Um, some of them work out very well; others, you know, don't. Um, but 
that's sort of the strategy. Yeah, my, my understanding is that the Supreme Court practice, in case you tell me if I'm wrong, it, you know, tends to be a loss leader for firms. Um, you know, he's not, Paul's not going to make money off the Little Sisters of the Poor, but the firm will gain in the prestige of, of having lawyers who argue X number of Supreme Court cases. So talk about the timing too. Like this was done in September. Is it was it done in order to be ready for this next term? It's a good question. <laughs> Do you have a sense? <laughs> well, it, it seems uh, uh, highly coincidental at, at a minimum. Uh, it, it makes sense that as the court term begins, he, he wouldn't want to be in the middle of negotiations over over an acquisition. Uh, you know, just before he's about to argue a case. So it makes some sense that the summer would be a time that they would look to to make a change like this. And I'm interested in the overall impact on. Uh, this move on the Supreme Court, uh, on the Supreme Court bar. Lisa Blatt, another well-known Supreme Court lawyer, called this the biggest shakeup since Clement left King and Spalding. Do you have a sense of the, you know, just the amount of cases and and what this does to, I guess, the the bar? Well, she said that I think before Don Verrilli came out. True. So <laughs> we have to ask ask Lisa what she thinks now. Um, well, so uh, you know, thirty cases in the last five years—that's a pretty big chunk of you know for a court that only hears you know seventy-five cases or so a term right now. That's that's a big chunk of the cases. So uh, yeah, I think I think it's certainly fair to, to to think in those terms. And you know, keep in mind these firms compete really hard for these cases. These because there are so few uh, with with the large majority of the Supreme Court cases, um, you know, firms are trying to, you know, make their case for why they should be the ones to, to argue them. So, uh, you know, it, it's a big percentage of those cases that, that have now just gone to a different firm. Yeah, we should note that there have been comments made about Paul Clement over time in terms of comparing him to sports figures. Um, uh, there was a partner at Mayor Brown back in 2008 before he had joined King and Spaulding, who said, um, you know, the buzz in basketball when LeBron James was coming out of high school and turning pro is, is was the exact same buzz that, you know, the legal community had when, when Clement was looking around. And, and just recently, John Lindsay, the, uh, the name partner of Major Lindsay in Africa, um, you know, one of the active recruiting firms compared him to... Um, what was it, Josh? The uh, Kevin Durant joining the, uh, Golden State joining Warriors. Warriors. Yeah, let's let's switch and talk about Donald Verrilli a little bit. As we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Paul Clement was not the only former Solicitor General to join Big Law this month. Just this week, Donald Verrilli, Obama's former Solicitor General, announced he was joining Munger Tolls. Greg, tell us about. Donald Verrilli, you've seen him argue many times. What's he like? I have. Um, he is also in that top tier of the top tier. Um, he, he really had an incredible run over the last, uh, I guess, five years as the Obama administration's Solicitor General. Um, you know, he was really, if you think about the, the legacy of the Obama presidency, a big part of that is going to be uh, – the, the administration and the president up against the conservative wing of the Supreme Court. And Don Veroli was always the point person for that. And he was the face who was there trying to 
persuade either John Roberts or Anthony Kennedy to come over to the administration side on a case and uh, provide the fifth vote. And he succeeded, I think it's fair to say, significantly more often than most of us who watched the court would have predicted. So, you know, of course, we're thinking about Obamacare as, as a as a big case, uh, thinking about the, he argued the recent abortion case, the gay, the gay marriage case. Um, he, he did have some significant losses. He, uh, biggest of which is probably on the Voting Rights Act and the Shelby County decision. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, through that process, uh, I think uh, certainly <laughs> created a very big Don Verrilli fan club among those who supported the administration. Often on the opposite side of Clement, do, do you have any sense of of their relationship? Not specifically, but I would be shocked if it weren't a very cordial relation, a very respectful relationship. Both because they are they are just you know, attorneys who are generally respected, but because they've also both held this very uh, held this unique position of solicitor general, uh, where you have these sort of dual loyalties to both the president who appointed you and to the the court and the law and the nation. Um, and, you know, it, it's a it's an office unlike any other uh, in the federal government. And just by having shared that role, they, uh, you know, have have a tremendous amount in common and a tremendous understanding of one another. He had been a partner at Jenner and Block, so many expected that he might return there. Let's talk about the move to Munger Tolls. Munger Tolls is a California firm for the past 25 years. They've only had two offices in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, that said, they are... Uh, they have a long history of being, you know, a firm that is handling the top cases in the country. Uh, Brad Bryan is um, one of their top partners. I think he's the co-managing partner of the firm, and um, he represented Transocean in the uh, BP uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Um, so it's another one of these firms that is uh, very reputable, um, but one. Um, one thing about them is that they're in the AMLA 200 as opposed to the AMLA 100, so it doesn't necessarily come up in the same um, in the same uh, name as you'd think of Skadden or Kirkland or or you know a, a top firm in like the AMLA 20. Um, in terms of gross revenue. Right. In terms of gross revenue. Their profits per partner I saw were a little higher and their revenue per lawyer was even higher than that. That's right. That makes sense. Um, and so this is their first uh, DC office and they brought in Don Verrilli and um, I, I saw that Verrilli said um, that it, it was kind of an interesting hire in that um, Verrilli's old law firm was Jenner and Block. You would ex have expected him to go back there, and and um, based on comments that were made to uh, to Gabe Friedman, who wrote on this, was that um, you know this sort of came up out of the blue that that Brad Bryan had reached out to Verrilli um, when he learned that he was looking around. Uh, the two met and then came to some agreement that he would join uh, Munger Tolls. Not 
completely unexpected. Munger is certainly up there in, in prestige, but uh, there's got to be something going on there. Yeah, Greg, were you surprised by this being the firm that he landed at? A little bit, because I know he always thought very highly of Jenner and Block. He, he certainly uh, you know, had a good relationship with them, both while he was there and, and as far as I know, afterwards. On the other hand, you know, I think one thing, that I, I know one thing that he was dealing with was he had this amazing job where he was in the center of the country's biggest legal fights. And almost anything else he did, if he went back to a corporate practice where he was, you know, hustling for uh, ERISA cases and arbitration cases, um, you know, he was worried about a letdown there. And starting up a new office, I, I, I haven't asked him this directly, but I strongly suspect that, you know, starting up a new office like this is a new sort of challenge for him uh, in a way that it wouldn't have been at Jenner and Block. Do you expect him to see him arguing at the court this term? My guess is not right away. And part of the reason is just conflicts of interest. Um, he's going to have to stay away from cases for a while uh, where it might implicate things that he learned while while Solicitor General. Often you see SGs go uh, serve as a visiting professor at a law school for a year or so just to let the conflicts go away. Uh, so if he does, it'll be probably near the end of the term. But he'll, I'd be surprised if he weren't back, uh, you know, within a couple of years, we'll, we'll be seeing him there again. And what do we expect out of this practice that he's going to set up in D.C.? Like what kinds of is it? Obviously, he was on the opposite side of Clement on on cases. Is this going to be like Clement, but more liberal or is it going to be something totally different? What, what can we expect to see this um, this D.C. office of Munger Tolls uh, taking on? It might remain to be seen. He he has some, you know, particular expertise in some areas. He he before he became SG, he uh, had did, did a lot of telecom work. Uh, argued some very big cases for the the telecommunications industry. Argued the Grokster case that had to do with uh, music file sharing. Um, he, he's. Uh, knows a lot about patent law, so that could be an area where they they branch out into. I I don't know that he's um, necessarily going to take on the ideological cases, but he might, and I'm you know I'm sure those would be w- would be of of some interest to him uh, as well. One thing that struck me as notable was that you know he did say that he wasn't going to really be recruiting partners from other firms. He was going to be focusing on um, homegrown talent, uh, recruiting out of law school, which says something about Munger and that they're not necessarily straying away from their strategy that they've sort of had all, all along, which is to stay small, but really good. So Greg, while we have you, what are some cases that are coming up as the term starts that are that are um, of interest? Well, it, it it's a little bit of a slow start to the term, uh, in part because the court seems to be shying away from some of the ide- ideologically divisive cases. But uh, there are a number of intellectual property cases, uh, one of which involves uh, Samsung and Apple and their patent fight over smartphones. There's a big insider trading case that the court will hear first time in about 20 years. Uh, they're taking up that subject. Uh, that's in, during the both of those are during the uh, the, the first 
first sitting of the court in in October, um, and then and then down the road we could end up with uh, you know something like the net neutrality case could make its way to the court. Uh, we could have uh, voter ID cases that the court could take up. So uh, it will probably be a term that gets better as we go along, and of course we may also have a ninth justice uh, by the end of the term. Right, and so as we start, we are we're still at that deadlocked 4-4. How do you see that going? Is it much of, is it going to be much the same of what we saw at the end of the last term? Well, a little bit, but what's different is that it became clear pretty pretty early on last term that there, there was not going to be a ninth justice to break break any ties. Um, and you know, this term, there is that hope uh, that uh, you know, even if they take up a case in October and their initial vote is four to four, they don't have to dispose of it right away. They can wait. And then if Merrick Garland or somebody else joins the court early next year, there there may well be time to re-argue the case in, in the last sitting, which is in uh, April. And then uh, the, the new justice would, would uh, presumably be the one who casts the deciding vote. Salmon v. U.S., you, you were talking about that when you were here. Can you uh, talk about that case and um, implications that it might have on the white-collar defense practice? Yeah, that's that's the insider trading case. Uh, it is, you know, in, insider trading is, it, it may be a unique area of criminal law in that uh, the federal securities fraud statutes don't say insider trading and they don't say anything that really sounds like insider trading. It's it's very much a judge-made area of criminal law, judge-made with help from the Securities and Exchange Commission and their interpretation of the, the securities fraud laws. And, uh, you know, one of the things that hasn't really been that hasn't really been spelled out is uh, if somebody who is a, a corporate insider passes information on to a family member, a friend, somebody on the golf course without trying to, to get anything in return. So this is not, we're not talking about the classic insider trading of, you know, insider gets a kick, you know, says here, here's some information and, and, you know, go make a trade and I'll, uh, and give me a kickback. Here's a, we're talking about cases where uh, the insider doesn't actually get anything in return or nothing, nothing tangible. Um, it's a little unclear as to whether that is a crime. And the Supreme Court had a case back in the early 1980s called Dirks that, um, uh, by my read of it at least, said two different things about whether that is a crime. So that's basically the issue the Supreme Court is going gonna, is gonna to take up. And it comes in the context of a guy who is a uh, Chicago grocery wholesaler um, who got – information basically through his extended family uh, uh, and, and made made a bunch of trades. And the question is whether uh, that conviction is overturned. Uh, th- there's some reason to think that the court's going to be kind of skeptical, but um, uh, we'll just have to see. What could this mean for insider trading cases going forward? You know, uh, they also already took a, a blow with the, the Newman decision, right? Yeah, so that's a decision out of the Second Circuit, and that was a big blow uh, to uh, the U.S. attorney there who had brought a number of, of high-profile cases. And uh, in that decision, there were there were a couple different issues, but they resolved this issue of whether there has to be a personal benefit to the insider by saying, yeah, um, it has to be something concrete. It can't just be, uh, you know, sort of fostering the, 
or nurturing the relationship with a friend or, or, or family member. Um, and the, the Supreme Court refused to hear the Solicitor General's uh, cert petition in that case, which is a, a, a pretty unusual move for the court. And then this case, the other case that, that they did end up taking, um, the, the Ninth Circuit decided that issue the opposite way. Um, and upheld this conviction. And then the Supreme Court agreed to hear uh, Mr. Salmon's uh, appeal. So um, in some senses, the from the prosecutorial standpoint, the damage has already been done because a number of cases have been thrown out in the Second Circuit. And so even if the, the uh, government were to to win the Salmon case, uh, that, that uh, you, you can't, you know, double jeopardy would prevent those people from being retried. Um, and then there's also a whole, whole separate issue that the court has not agreed to take up that's also, uh, you know, present in, in the Newman issue having to do with uh, knowledge of what the, the insider uh, was doing. Uh, so, uh, you know, a government win would give a little boost to insider trading cases, but it may not uh, sort of, you know, open the, the door to the kind of crackdown we, we had been seeing before. That's all for this episode. For more on the business of law, check out biglawbusiness.com. While you're there, sign up for our daily newsletter. You can also download our new mobile app from the iTunes App Store. If you'd like to write to us, our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow Greg Store at Greg Store. That's S-T-O-H-R. Follow Casey on Twitter at Casey underscore Big Law. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Block NYC. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it. 